Chapters 25 and 26 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 25. The First Visitors. As soon as Mrs. Force opened the door, Dr. Ingle stepped rapidly to meet her, with both hands extended. "'Welcome back to us, dear friend. Only this morning we heard of your arrival through Ned Grandier, who came to my office early to ask me to call and see one of the colored folks on his farm. But Natalie immediately took a fit, and declared that I must bring her and the babies here before going anywhere else. So here they are, and now I must be off to Oldfields.' Before the doctor had half finished this speech, Natalie herself was in Mrs. Force's arms, laughing and crying for joy. "'Well, well, I must say good-bye, madame,' exclaimed the doctor, rather impatiently, as he held out his hands to the lady of the house. "'I suppose I must not detain you from your patience, but I cannot let you go until you have promised to return to dinner, and to spend the evening with us,' said Mrs. Force. "'I thank you. I promise. Good morning.' and the doctor bowed himself out of the drawing-room. "'Oh, you sweet little thing, you lovely, lovely little thing,' cooed Elva, seated upon a hassock, with the few-months-old baby across her lap. "'These are your children, Natalie? What fine children they are,' said Mrs. Force, as they all resumed their seats. "'Do you think so? I am glad you think so,' replied the proud young mother. "'Come here, Effie, and speak to this lady,' she continued, taking a little white-robed toddler by the hand, and leading her up to Mrs. Force. The little one stood before the lady, with her chin down on her bosom, and her soft brown eyes turned shyly up to her hostess. "'Make your curtsy now to the lady,' said her mother. The little creature obeyed and dropped her curtsy, still turning her soft brown eyes, full of reverence and admiration, up to her hostess's face. "'So this is my little namesake?' said Mrs. Force, lifting the child upon her lap. "'Yes, named Elfrida, for you and Elva. "'But we call her Effie, and she calls herself Essie,' said the young mother. "'Ah, is that your name, little one?' inquired the lady, stroking the child's curls. "'Es, ma'am, Essie,' replied the baby. "'And what else besides Essie?' "'Essie Indy, ma'am. "'Oh, Essie Ingle, is that it?' "'Es, ma'am, Essie Indy.' "'And how old are you, Essie?' "'Me, too, doin' fee.' Mrs. Force looked at the mother for a translation of these words. "'She is two years, going on three. laughed little Mrs. Ingle. Mrs. Force continued her catechism of the child, who answered in broken baby language, but with rare intelligence, and still with such simple reverence and admiration as touched the lady's heart. "'Oh, Natalie,' she said, "'can there be anything more spirit-searching to a grown-up sinner than the innocent reverence and trust of a child? Lo, they think us so wise and so good.' Well, we know ourselves to be so foolish and evil. Ah, me, Natalie. Young Mrs. Ingle made no reply, but looked puzzled and distressed, while little Essie put up her hand timidly, reverentially, and stroked the fair cheek of the lady, with some vague instinct of tenderness and sympathy. Oh, Mamma, look at little Winnie, sweet little Winnie. You have not noticed her yet, said Elva, reproachfully, as she arose and brought the infant to her mother. "'Winnie?' inquired Mrs. Force, looking up into Natalie Ingle's face as she sat Essie on the carpet and took the babe on her lap. "'Yes, we have named her Wynnette, and we call her Winnie. She is not christened yet. We waited for you to come home,' Natalie explained. They were interrupted by other visitors. The Reverend Dr. Peters and Mrs. Peters came to welcome their old friends to the neighborhood. 
Three years and three months since you left the neighborhood, madame, said the rector, when the first greetings were over. And dear, dear, what changes three years have made. Your two younger daughters have grown so much. Wynnette is a young lady. Elva soon will be one. And Odalite, madame, I hope she is well. Odalite is quite well, thank you, Dr. Peters. She has gone over to Greenbushes, but she will be back to dinner. You and Mrs. Peters, I hope, will give us the happiness of your company for the day, said the lady. Thank you very much, but on this first day after your return home. Now, doctor, I will take no denial. Wynnette, my love, go and tell Jacob to put up the doctor's carriage and horse. Mrs. Peters, will you lay off your bonnet here, or will you go to a room? I will go upstairs, if you please, dear. You see, I have my cap in this little bandbox, replied the rector's wife. So they had come to stay, and of course Mrs. Force knew that well enough when she invited them. An old couple, like the good rector and his wife, could not be expected to come so long a drive, only to make a short call. Mrs. Force conducted her latest guest upstairs to a spare room, where the old lady took off her black Canton crepe shawl and her black silk bonnet, and put on her lace cap with white satin ribbons, and then they went down together. When they returned to the drawing-room they found the place deserted. Wynnette had carried off young Mrs. Ingle and the two babies, to her own and Elva's room, which was now converted into a day-nursery, where Natalie, seated in a low rocking-chair, was putting her baby to sleep, while Elva, with a picture-book, was quietly amusing Essie. "'Now, Natty, dear, as you know you are quite at home, you must excuse me, and let me go down to Dr. Peters, who is alone in the drawing-room,' said Wynnette, as she kissed her ex-governess and dear friend and left the chamber." but when she reached the hall below she found that the good rector was well taken care of. Through the open hall door she saw him and her father walking up and down the piazza, enjoying the fine spring day and smoking some of the squire's fine cigars. So Wynnette went into the drawing-room, where she found her mother and the rector's wife, who had just entered the place. More visitors. The gallop and halt of a horse was heard without and soon after Mr. Sam Grandier, escorted by Mr. Force and Dr. Peters, entered the drawing-room, and made his bow to the lady of the house and her guest, and then shook hands with Wynnette and sat down, looking as red-headed, freckle-faced, bashful, and awkward as ever. He remarked that it was a fine day, though bad for the wheat crop, which wanted rain, and then he hoped that Mrs. Force and the young ladies felt rested after their journey. Mrs. Force thanked him, and replied that the whole family were quite recovered from any little fatigue they might have felt. The rector, to help the bashful young fellow out, inquired how he had enjoyed his trip to Washington, and what he thought of the city. Young Sam was not to be improved in that way. He made a characteristic reply, ignoring every object of interest within the city's bounds. He answered that he thought the land about Washington very poor indeed, and very badly farmed, and crops looked very unpromising. He thought the soil had been too hard-worked, and too little manured, and that it wanted rest and food, so to speak. But the city, my dear boy, the city! What do you think of the city, the great capital of a great nation? persisted the minister. The city? Well, Mr. Sam Grandier didn't think much of the city. There didn't seem to be much downright, solid, earnest business going on there, like there was in Baltimore. And for his part, he didn't see how the people lived, except such as were in the service of the government— no, bad as the country was round about Washington, the city was even worse, even less productive. The rector took up cudgels in defense of the national seat of government, 
spoke of the public buildings, the Capitol, the departments, the patent office, the navy yard, and so on. But Mr. Sam Grandier could not see any profit or produce in any of them. So the rector gave him over to a reprobate spirit. Presently Mrs. Ingle, having left both her babies asleep upstairs, with Elva lovingly watching over them, came down into the drawing-room and greeted the minister and his wife, and also Mr. Force, whom she had not earlier seen. "'You have grown plumper and rosier in the last three years, my dear. I should scarcely recognize in you the pale, delicate young bride whom I gave away to the worthy doctor. Ah, I see how it is. He has enforced the laws of health,' said the squire, as he warmly shook her hand. "'Yes, that is it,' replied Natalie. "'He makes my life a burden to me, with regime and hygiene.' At this moment, Lee and Odalite walked into the room. Lee shook hands with the rector and his wife, while Odalite literally threw herself into the arms of Natalie. And a few minutes later, when she had greeted all her parents' guests, she went upstairs with young Mrs. Ingle to feast her eyes on the sleeping babies, over which Elva was proudly and tenderly watching. There the two friends sat down and had a good, long talk, all about the young doctor's prospects, the young couple's home, the neighbors, and so forth, but not once did they speak of Odalite's trials. Odalite herself never alluded to the subject, nor did Natalie dare to do so. And it may here be said that the reticence which was observed in the seclusion of the bedchamber was practiced in the social circle of the drawing-room. Neither Mr. nor Mrs. Force mentioned the subject of their family troubles, nor could their guests venture to do so. Elfrida dreaded the indiscreet tongue of the lady from Wildcats, so she was greatly relieved when she went out to caution Mrs. Anglesia, to hear that honest woman say, "'Let's try to be jolly this one day, and forget all about my rascal and our troubles. Deed, do you know I have told everybody in this county how he treated me, so that they all know it as well as their ABC? And that's a rhyme come out of time. I didn't intend it, but I can't mend it. I say, hold on here. There is something the matter with my headpiece. I never composed no poetry before, and didn't mean to do it now. It come out so itself.' but you needn't be afeard of me talking about Scalawag Anglesia. I'm sick to death of the name of him, concluded the lady from the mines. Mrs. Force then turned to receive young Dr. Ingle, who had just driven up in his gig and was now entering the front door, while old Jake took his equipage around to the stables. Half an hour later dinner was served, and in spite of all drawbacks, it proved a happy reunion of old friends. After dinner the carriages were ordered, and the visitors departed. CHAPTER Twenty Six, LEE'S DEPARTURE One day Lee spent in going around the neighborhood to see the old friends and neighbors, whom he had not seen for more than three years. The next day he stayed home at Mondrier, and spent nearly the whole of it in company of Odalite. At night the squire drove him to the railway station, accompanied by Odalite, Wynnette, and Elva, as once before. Also, Lee was permitted to sit on the back seat beside Odalite, and when there he held her hand in his as on the previous occasion. They reached the railway station in such good time that they had about fifteen minutes to wait in the little sitting-room, and there the last adieus were made, when the train came in. "'It is not for a three years' absence at sea this time, my dear. It is scarcely for three weeks. Before the middle of May I shall be with you again, please heaven,' said Lee, as he pressed Odalite to his heart in a last embrace." before he jumped into the car to be whirled out of sight. Mr. Force with his daughters waited until the sound of the rushing train died away in the distance, and then took them back to the carriage and drove homeward. 
Again, as before, they reached home about ten o'clock, to find Mrs. Force and the lady from the diggings waiting up for them. Only on this occasion, they were not sitting over a blazing hickory wood fire in the dead of winter and night, with a jug of mulled wine steaming on the hearth, but they were sitting on the front piazza, on a fine spring evening, with a little table, on which was arranged a pitcher of iced sherbet with glasses and a plate of wafer cakes. "'Well, he went off gay and happy as a lark, and we have come home chirp and merry as Griggs,' said Wynnette, as she tore off and threw down her straw hat and seated herself at the table. "'Oh, I hope he will have a pleasant journey and a good time altogether. He can't fail to get all the evidence he wants, cause it's right there, you know. And I give him a letter to Joe Mullins at Wildcats, as one of the witnesses to the marriage, though he wasn't asked to sign the register. How should he when he couldn't read?' I hope he'll have time to run out to Wildcats to see Joe. Though, come to think of it, I don't know as he'll find anything there but dark shafts and empty shanties. The leads was running out, and the boys was talking of leaving when I came away. Ah, I hope he will find some of the poor dear boys. I should love to hear from them direct once more. How far is Wildcats from St. Sebastian, Mrs. Anglesia? rather anxiously inquired Wynnette. "'Oh, only a step. Let's see now. About a hundred and seventy-seven miles, I think they said it was. "'Is there a railroad?' "'A what? A railroad? Oh, Lord! Why, child, when I was out there, which was less than four years ago, "'there was not even a turnpike road within a hundred miles of it. "'There's a trail, though.' "'What do you mean by a trail?' "'Well, I mean a mule track.' "'Then I do not think that Lee can go there. It must be a long and tedious journey, and he will not have time.' "'Oh, yes, he will, and opportunity also.' There'll be mule trains, you know. He can pack on one of them. He can rough it. You bet. He's every inch a man, is Lee Force. He must not risk losing his passage on our steamer, said Odalite. Do not be anxious, my dear. He will not run any risks of losing the steamer. I think also that he will have time to do our friend's commission. There has been a road made over that section since Mrs. Anglesia left it. And now I think we had better go indoors. The night air is too cold to remain out longer." They went into the house and soon after retired to bed. The days that followed Lee's departure were active, cheerful, full of life. The old friends and neighbors of the forces received them back into their midst, with not only the earnest love of time-honored friendship, but with the distinction due to illustrious visitors. They called on them promptly. They got up dinner and tea parties for their entertainment. They would have nominated Mr. Force as their representative in Congress for the ensuing year, but that he was going abroad with his family for a year. The forces entered heartily into all the schemes of pleasure and hospitality set on foot in the community. They accepted all the invitations given to them, and in return they gave dinner and tea parties until they had also entertained all their friends and neighbors. And so the last weeks of April passed, and May was on hand. Letters from Lee came by every Californian mail. He had reached St. Sebastian, he had found the Reverend Father Minitree. He had searched the parish register, found the marriage between Angus Anglesia and Anne Maria Wright, duly recorded, signed, and witnessed. He had hunted out the living witnesses, and he had procured attested copies of the marriage record, further endorsed by the written and sworn statements of the officiating priest and of the surviving witnesses. And so, with evidence as strong as evidence could be, he wrote that he was ready to come home, only that he wished to oblige Mrs. Anglesia by going out to Wildcat's Gulch to inquire after her boys. The journey there and back, he thought, might occupy him four days. After that he should start for home, which he hoped to reach about the 15th of May. 
Letters also came from the Earl of Enderby in answer to Mrs. Force's missive that had announced the time of the family sailing for Europe. Letters saying that the very near prospect and the anticipation of seeing his dear and only sister and her children had made him feel so much better in spirits that his health had improved under it. Among the most constant visitors at Mondrier was Mr. Sam Grandier, whose visits could not be mistaken as to their meaning, and whose attentions to Wynnette on all occasions of their meetings in other companies had attracted the observation of the whole neighborhood and caused much talk. Mr. Force is such a practical sort of man that so long as he knows young Grandier comes of good old Maryland family, and that his character is beyond reproach, he will not mind his roughness of manner or plainness of speech, or his want of a college education, or refuse him his daughter on that account, said young Dr. Ingle to his wife one evening when they were talking over the affair. No, perhaps not, but how could our brilliant Wynnette ever fancy such a lout, exclaimed Natalie indignantly. Oh, indeed, you are too severe on the poor fellow, and you, coming from the north, do not understand our Maryland ways. In your state it is the farmer's boys who are sent to school and college in preference to the girls, if any are to go. But in Maryland it is always the farmer's girls who are put to boarding school in preference to the boys. As in your state you find learned statesmen, lawyers, and clergymen belonging to families of very plainly educated women— so in our state you will find refined and accomplished women in the same families with very plain, simply-schooled men. It is queer, but it is so. Our Maryland men will make any sacrifice, even that of their own mental culture, in order to educate their women, and I think in that they show the very spirit of generosity. But among all the people who observed and criticized the growing intimacy between Wynnette and young Grandier, none was more interested than quaint little Rosemary Hedge, Rosemary was poetic, romantic, and sentimental to a degree. She was devoted to Wynnette and Elva Force, and she could not bear the idea of Wynnette throwing herself away on such a rustic. He is my own dear cousin, Wynnette, and I love him dearly as a cousin. But indeed, I could not marry him to save my soul. And though he is a good boy, I do not think he is a proper match for you, said Rosemary, one morning, when she had come to spend the day at Mondrier, and the two girls were tot-a-tot in Wynnette's room where she had taken her visitor to lay off her bonnet. "'Why not?' curtly demanded Wynnette, who did not like these criticisms upon her lover. But worse was to come. "'Why not?' echoed Rosemary. "'Why, because dear Sam is so rough and ungainly. He has red hair and a freckled face. So has the Duke of Argyle and all the princely Campbells. And he has a club nose. So have I, pot can't call kettle black. And such big hands and feet.' so much the better for useful work. But, oh, Wynnette, he, he, what now? He has no education to speak of, nothing but a common school education. Like any number of our great men who have risen to high rank, wealth and fame in the army, navy, civil service, or learned professions. Yes, but he'll never rise above his station. He has an intellect enough. Neither had any of the grand, brave, simple heroes and warriors of old, whose deeds stir our hearts even now. But Wynnette, Sam Grandier is nothing like that. He would not even understand you if you were to talk to him as you do to me. His thoughts run all on crops and cattle and whatever is really useful and beneficial to his folks. In meeting their material wants only, Wynnette. But it is vain to argue with you, if you are determined to throw yourself away on Sam Grandier. Now, Rosemary, stow that, or the fat will be in the fire, exclaimed the girl, flushing with a blaze of short-lived anger. 
I mean I cannot bear to hear you depreciate the excellence of Samuel Grandier. He is honest, true, and tender. He is as brave as a lion, and as magnanimous as a king, ought to be. Yes, I know, but—and where would you find such a lineage in the States as his? vehemently interrupted Wynnette. His pedigree can be traced back step by step to the Sieur Louis de Grandier, who came over to England in the year 1420, in the suit of Catherine of Valois, Queen of Henry V, though, of course, that tells but little. He was probably a gentleman-in-waiting, though he might have been a horse-boy. He was a gentleman-in-waiting on the Queen. He was a nobleman of province, replied quaint little Rosemary, craning her neck in defense of her ancestor. Oh, he was, well, I always thought so. But that is more than can be said of Mr. Roland Bayard, said Wynnette maliciously. Rosemary flushed to the edges of her curly black hair. I do not know what he has to do with the question, she murmured. Only this, my love, that while we are taking sweet counsel together, and you are giving me the benefit of your wisdom in regard to Mr. Samuel Elk Grandier, I might reciprocate by giving you a friendly warning in respect to Mr. Roland Bayard. Oh, Wynnette, cried Rosemary, deprecatingly, while the color deepened all over her face and neck. Nobody knows who he is. He was washed ashore from the wreck of the carrier pigeon, the only one saved. He was adopted by Miss Sibby, good soul, and he was educated at the expense of Mr. Force, generous man. Why, he was not only homeless, friendless, and penniless, but he was nameless until the name of Roland Bayard was given him by Mr. Force and Miss Sibby, who were his sponsors in baptism. Oh, oh, Wynnette, no one can look at Roland Bayard without seeing that he must be of princely lineage. He is very handsome and graceful and accomplished. He is refined, cultured, intellectual, pleaded Rosemary. Don't see it. He has been through college, and he has plenty of modest assurance, which prevents him from being bashful and awkward, as some of his betters are. But all the same, he is nobody's son. Oh, Wynnette, that is not generous of you. Can, dear— "'Can Roland help his misfortune? "'Is he to blame for being wrecked on our shore in his infancy "'and losing everything, even his name?' "'Oh, Wynnette,' said Rosemary, with tears in her eyes. "'No, I am not generous. "'I am a little catamount, and worse than that. "'It is not true, either, what I said about him. "'Roland is a fine fellow, and of course he must have been somebody's son. "'Don't cry, Rosie. "'I didn't mean it, dear. "'Only the devil does get in me sometimes,' said the generous girl.' "'stooping and kissing her quaint little friend. "'Rosemary smiled through her tears, "'and then they went downstairs together. "'And as this was the first, "'so it was the last time "'that the subject in dispute "'was mentioned between the two girls. "'End of chapter 26